That goes out to Virginia Vic. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, September 26, 2014. This week, episode 341 comes to you from Studio D at the IAQ Radio, IAQ Training Institute World Headquarters in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio is our engineer, Jessica Lawson. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon, Jess. I'm flying solo today. The Z-Man is with some family for Rosh Hashanah. He'll be back next Friday with our uh, next uh, broadcast. Actually, next week we're going to have Rebecca Morley on with the National Center for Healthy Housing. They've got a new healthy home standard, which should be interesting to talk about. All right, today's segments, we're going to do a little update, uh, news update for the first 10 minutes or so here. Dr. Richard Corsi will be joining us after that. He's going to be about 10 to 15 minutes behind to start, but I've got a few things we can do in the interim. I will also, of course, be uh, hopefully joined by our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, later in the show. Let's uh, first thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon, J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at Clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and C-M-M-Online.com. We'd like to welcome as our newest marquee sponsors, IAQ.net and Healthy In. Okay, we lost our the end of our sponsors, but I want to thank Bob Crow at Healthy Indoors Magazine. You can subscribe at IAQ.net. All right. So everybody knows how to get the show now. You just go to that IAQRadio.com website. Go to the show link. You can download shows there or, of course, from iTunes. Also, check out the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at IAQTraining.com. All right. I'm going to do the IAQ radio trivia question today. I don't see any of our trivia gurus on today. so Oh, Andy's on. Oh, Andy, you deserve this. I've got a special award, special prize today for the first person that uh, gets the trivia question. we got some new IAQ radio shirts in here this uh, last couple of weeks, and uh, so we're going to do that for uh, hopefully Andy will get this one. All right, go for it. Okay, you can win a cool prize, and this week it'll be a really cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ radio listeners and be the first to correctly answer our trivia question. Just submit your answer to, let's use joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com, or if you're listening live, you can text it via your computer. Congratulations. 
John Lapoter, MicroShield Environmental Services, was the first with the correct answer to last week's trivia question. All right, today's trivia question for September 26th, 2014, as always, sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association. You can check out the Triska website at www.trsca.org. Now, for this week's IAQ Radio trivia question, what former Yale leader and later district judge introduced the Hook'em Horns sign? All right. What do you think, Jess? Interesting one, huh? <laughs> Jess doesn't know. Let's see if we can get a correct answer in here. We got, And if you do get the correct answer, give us your shirt size. We got some real nice IAQ Radio shirts that came in here about two, three weeks ago. All right. Today's show, we're going to we're going to talk to Mr. Richard Corsi, uh, Dr. Corsi. Let me get my intro stuff here. Is the chair and ECH Bantel Professor for Professional Practice, Civil Architectural, and Enviro- Environmental Engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. He has a PhD in Civil Engineering from the University of California at Davis. Got that in 1989. He joined the faculty of the University of Texas at Austin in 1994, and he conducts research on indoor air quality, including the sources and control of indoor air pollution and human exposure to indoor toxins. He has also studied how architectural materials can remove chemicals from building air, offering protection for occupants following terrorist attacks. Like I was saying, he'll be here in just a little bit, and one of the um, news updates I wanted to make sure we got out is that uh, we've got a couple great shows coming up this week. Uh, we've got, of course, Dr. Corsi, but what we've what we've done is we've lined up several of his PhD students to discuss some of their research projects and how we can take that research to practice. So that first show will start two weeks from today, next Friday at noon. We've got the. Um, uh, show with Rebecca Morley. We've got the National Center for Healthy Housing, so we're going to bring her on. She's the executive director to talk about their new Healthy Home Standard, which ought to be an interesting show as well. And then, um, by the way, on the second Friday of every month for the next, at least I would say probably for the next year, maybe at least six months, we're going to have a representative from the Indoor Air Quality Association come in and give us a little update on the IAQA ASHRAE excuse me, uh, merger or whatever they're calling unification merger where IAQA recently announced that they were going to be uh, managed by the same group of people that manage the ASHRAE group, the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers, and that um, they're joining forces with ASHRAE because of ASHRAE's desire to get more involved in indoor air quality issues. Um, They're kind of really focusing on indoor air quality. Uh, That was part of uh, Dr. Bonfleth, uh, the past president, the immediate past president. It was part of his mission as president. Uh, the current president, Tom Phoenix, uh, he's also very much on board with uh, focusing more on indoor air quality. We've done shows with both of those gentlemen in the past month, I would say. So if you want to learn more about that merger between IAQA and ASHRAE, check it out um, on the IAQ uh, radio 
website. Go back to, uh, I can't remember the exact show number, Jess, but we can, uh, folks can just go to our website on the homepage, scroll down a little bit. You'll see the, the show number for those guys. All right. Also, coming up in the next three weeks or so, I would say, uh, we've got board meetings for the IICRC, and, and I think the first full board meeting for what they call the IICRCA. That's the Council of Associations. And we've been following both groups, the IICRC chairman, Tony Wheelwright, was on earlier this year to discuss some of his policies and his um, I guess goals for the for his presidential or chairman's term, and uh, one of the big things that he did uh, helped to pioneer or helped help to engineer over the past year or so now, probably about a year and a half, is the um, development of a new organization, the IICRCA, what they're referring to as the Council of Associations, and both the IICRCA and IICRC meetings are in mid. No, uh, October here coming up in the middle of next month, and they're actually both going to be up in the uh, Vancouver, Vancouver, Washington region. So looking forward to getting you all a report after those meetings on what kind of progress is being made with that new organization, and also we'll report back on the election for the board of directors for the IICRC. That's always an interesting, uh, interesting topic. Uh, once a year we get several new board members coming on for IICRC. All right, next, um, there's an IAQA white paper out, which is interesting. Um, they, they put a white paper out on, I guess, on air filtration devices during the post-remediation verification phase of mold remediation projects. Now, I haven't digested the whole paper yet, but the gist of it is that essentially that that boils down to there's not enough scientific evidence to either say we should definitely leave them on or we should definitely turn them off. And essentially at this point they're leaving it as a case-by-case decision with the contractor and the IEP, if there is one, the indoor environmental professional kind of working out, I think under the direction of the IEP, whether or not the machines would be turned on, turned off, for how long they would be turned on, turned off prior to the uh, post-remediation verification, primarily the sampling, and that's been the, the, the point of contention. You know, do you leave these machines on during sampling or do you turn them off during the sampling? And that's, you know, I guess the, the argument being that if you turn them off, there's the potential for cross-contamination because you no longer have the work area under the control of the negative pressure containment and uh, contaminants could migrate out of the containment into the rest of the building. Um, on the other side of the coin, people were saying, well, you don't really get a very uh, accurate uh, and uh, representative sampling data when you are shutting off the machine or when you leave the machines on for the post-remediation verification, that it's more real world like to turn them off and IAQA basically um, as I understand it the committee was led by a past guest of IAQ radio Jack Springston uh, out of the New York area there and um, essentially they they came to the conclusion there's not enough evidence scientific evidence uh, research to make a, a strong statement one way or the other so that will now be up to the indoor environmental professional and I'm assuming there will be more research on that but I haven't had time to digest the whole thing it just came out early, earlier this week alright one more item I want to update folks on and that is um, 
government issues and, and mostly having to do with government regulation and primarily on mold remediation, <clears throat> there's been a lot of uh, activity here in the last oh, six months on this front. And um, let's start with Texas. Um, Texas had proposed to repeal or to, I don't know what the exact term is, I guess, to no longer um, to, to repeal, I guess it would be, their Texas mold licensing law. So they had looked at that as a part of the you know, government um, downsizing and, and making sure that the regulations are really doing what they're supposed to do. It was proposed that they were going to drop the licensing program in the state of Texas. Well, there had been a great deal of uh, interest in that. There had been a couple of public hearings on it. And at this point in time, because of all that interest and, and public interest, at this point they have not decided one way or the other whether they're going to drop that program. I think we can expect it to stick around. And that's the, At this point, the latest information we're getting is that it will be around, but that it may move from the Department of Health to the Department of Licensing in 2016. Uh, I know IAQA, and I want to thank also uh, Cole Stanton. Cole is the Government Affairs Chair for IAQA. He um, he put together a great report. I've been working with him on that committee, and then I have the IICRC Government Affairs uh, Committee as well. Uh, yeah, he got it. All right. Way to go, Andy. Uh, Andy got the correct answer. The answer was Harley Clark was the guy that put together. Let's see. What was the – let me get the, the exact question. The University of Texas Longhorns um, the Yale leader and later district judge that introduced the hook'em horn sign was Harley Clark. Great job, Andy. All right, let's move on to Louisiana. There's some rumor that they are continuing, also considering discontinuance of their mold licensing program. At this point, uh, it doesn't seem to be happening. Uh, we're going to keep an eye on that one. Uh, they do have a contractor's licensing program in Louisiana uh, at this point. And also, uh, there was a law signed by Governor Jindal that requires home inspectors to perform a mold assessment when mold is suspected. Um, now, I'm not sure if it's, it's that they have to do it or that they have to at least notify the owner that there's a potential for mold in the home. So that's one we're following. New York, um, New York State, lots to report on New York State, although it's kind of still in limbo. The last we heard, and this is probably accurate up to about a week ago, the um, bill that would require licensing in New York State was still sitting on the um, Albany desk of the governor, and he had not made a decision yet on whether or not to sign that bill. So there are some very powerful interests that seem to be inclined uh, against regulation in general, which I, I think is pretty common nationwide at this point in time. But uh, IAQA and, um, and I, with IICRC, are working closely on that one. We're going to keep an eye on that one. Uh, IAQA put out a uh, notice to their members in the area asking them what their thoughts are, whether we thought, you know, whether members thought it should be licensed or not. And uh, we're, we're waiting for a final tally on that particular uh, request from people out there. But we'll, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what New York does. We'll keep you updated right here on IAQ Radio. And then we've got New Jersey. Um, New Jersey's been trying for 
I want to say a year now, um, to, to do some regulation after this all happened, mostly after uh, Sandy, after Hurricane Sandy. We had a lot of interest up in the northeast corridor there to regulate mold remediation and mold assessment. And in New Jersey, there, have, there was a bill last year that I, they called, I guess, a pocket veto that um, Governor uh, Christie, uh, Chris Christie, did not he didn't um, not basically let it lapse, all right? He let it sit on his desk until it was lapsed, so they called it a pocket veto. He didn't come right out and say, you know, hey, I'm going to veto this bill, but he let it lapse. And it looks like that's being reintroduced. Um, right now, last I heard, it was in the Senate Energy and Environment Committee for a second reading. It uh, looks like um, – it was reintroduced after Governor Christie pocket vetoed it in January of last year, pretty much identical to the vetoed measure. It was approved by the General Assembly in late June, and they're describing the process as at a steady pace with strong bipartisan support, and likely that will get to the governor again. So we'll see what happens. Once again, IAQA has been working with their membership to get their feel for whether or not the membership wants to see that type of regulation in New Jersey, and um, if so, then IAQA will put together a position statement to that effect, or they will, uh, well, well, I can't speak for IAQA's government affairs folks, but um, it should be an interesting year when it comes to regulation in the state. So we've got Texas, we've got Louisiana, kind of made a slight change and then considering maybe at least we're getting rumors they may want to get rid of their licensing but they did add some requirements for the uh, home inspectors and then we had uh, new york which uh, was interesting and that that's still sitting we'll see what happens on that new jersey they're they're going at it again they actually had a bill that went through but uh okay we'll be right with uh, our guest has just joined us and then the last one is uh new hampshire and New Hampshire, again, is trying – well, I take that back. There's two more. New Hampshire is, is kind of – there's some rumblings again in New Hampshire um, at, with some possible licensing going on up in the New Hampshire area. And um, that is still an interesting situation up there. What, what happened is the American Lung Association, in uh, cooperation with uh, some other task force up there, had, had tried to get something together in, um, in New Hampshire – but um, you know how politics are. It didn't didn't come through the way they had expected, and it looks like they may be trying again. Lastly, Florida is continuing their regulation of mold. Uh, they actually developed some some, I guess, some practices and procedures for the people who are doing assessment and remediation. They just had a meeting on that not long ago. Uh, there was a proposed standard essentially. And um, that one is still wrapped up in uh, in committee with uh, the Florida Department of Business and Professional Regulation. So we'll keep you posted on that one as well. All right. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to switch gears here. Thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at 
www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleancleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. We'd like to welcome as our newest marquee sponsors... IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscription information is available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. And it looks like we've got our guest on the line. Before we bring him on, though, let's play a little fight music for Dr. Corsi. All right. Hello, Dr. Corsi. Do we have you on the line? You do. Hi, Joe. How great, are you? Great. Thanks for joining us. I know you had a busy day, and you squeezed us in between a couple of meetings. Yes, I did. <laughs> and, this, and, is, this is a, a joy, though. Well, good, because in the in the intro, I talked a little bit about what we had discussed with respect to having some of your, uh, some of your Ph.D. candidates, and, and maybe, I don't know if they're all just candidates or maybe they're Ph.D.s as well, join us on some future shows to discuss some of their research. And, That'd be great. And we've got some uh, wonderful students doing great things, and um, some of our past students are now doing great things, and that, that's what it's all about for me. Well, and I'd love to get some past people as well. What? How many, I'm just kind of curious, how big of a, a department is it that, you know, you're, you're with the uh, professional practice, civil, architectural, and environmental engineering group there, and, and I guess your focus is indoor air quality issues and indoor sciences. How many people in that group? So the whole department has 54 professors and 1,200 students, so we're a very large department. And the indoor air quality group, what we call it building energy and environments, is actually a very small group within that larger department. We have uh, currently four professors that are doing research on indoor air quality, which um, actually is a pretty large group for indoor air quality at any university in the world, but four out of 54 professors. Um, and we have at any given time... Now, probably anywhere from 20 to 25 graduate students 
uh, master's students and PhD students working with us. So, you know, it's a it's a relatively small group in terms of academic groups go. It's a relatively large program in terms of the indoor air quality field. Yeah, I can't think of any other in the indoor air quality field that would have those kind of numbers. I mean, who else is, has a good program for indoor air quality? Well, in the uh, so tr- traditionally, a lot of the research on indoor air quality, at least in the United States, has been in um, schools of public health. It's been more um, health-related, industrial hygiene-related. There hasn't been much in the sort of engineering domain. Um, and so, you know, Harvard School of Public Health has always done some good work on indoor air quality. Uh, UC Berkeley does work on indoor air quality, but that it, they tend to have researchers that are kind of spread across several departments on campus and not a nucleus in one area. Uh, internationally, there are um, universities that are um, doing a lot more research than universities in the United States are now. Um, Tsinghua University in, in Beijing, China, has a, has a really strong indoor air quality group. Uh, National University of Singapore has a strong group. Uh, there are other universities in Korea and Japan uh, that have that strong programs, Taiwan as well. So I would say that a lot of the activity in our field now, at least from a research standpoint, is in the Pacific Rim. You know, um, A lot more research money and, and just a lot more interest in the subject. I'm glad you bring up the, the worldwide interest because I know you, you were at uh, Indoor Air 2014. I guess that was in Hong Kong, and, and you did a presentation called challenges and opportunities for indoor air science for the indoor air sciences community and actually this was the closing plenary session and and i'm 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 curious before we get into the specifics of that particular uh presentation what were your thoughts in general about indoor air 2014 what kind of you know hit you that you, you you wanted to make sure that our listeners are aware of um, I think it was a really good meeting. I think my 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 impressions are, uh, in terms of big picture, I think that the research being done in the Pacific Rim is really um, improving in its quality substantially. There were a lot of really exceptional presentations um, by researchers in China uh, and and elsewhere. Um, so that that's number one. And of course, because of the location of the conference, the conference was dominated by researchers in that area. Um, I think the second thing is that there is so much going on right now uh, that advances our understanding of uh, microbiology in the indoor environment. So there was a wonderful thread of sessions and workshops at this conference that were actually organized by somebody who's been a speaker on your show before, I think, Hal Levin. Um, And they were organized for this conference, and there were activities every single day uh, looking at genomic analysis and, you know, all these um, uh, DNA-based, you know, measurements and trying to understand uh, better uh, about indoor microbiology and ecology and, and, you know, the fact that there are good bacteria in buildings and bad bacteria and we shouldn't try to eradicate everything in buildings because some of the, the good bacteria in buildings actually have an effect in staving off mold in buildings and, you know, a lot of great research on, on linking uh, with these new molecular tools, uh, improved understanding of microbiology and asthma in buildings. So I would say that really stood out to me as being the topic that I think we're seeing great advances in. Um, I think that Relative to Indoor Air 2011, which was in Austin, um, there were there was much less of a focus on practice, and that's where that's one area where I, I would have liked to have seen uh, you know more interaction between the research and community and practitioners. And um, I think in part that's because of where it was located. I think that, that indoor air quality practice is a much more 
robust, you know, sector of of the field in the United States than it is in the Pacific Rim, at least at this point. Um, and so I think that was one thing that was lacking from the conference. But otherwise, I thought the conference was was really exceptional. Uh, do you know? I, I get the same impression that you know in other parts of the world there just aren't a lot of practitioners out doing indoor air quality consulting. I guess we could call it. Um, is that? I guess that's because they're just kind of catching up on on the curve of things with with respect to the issues that can be caused by bad indoor air quality. Is, is that? Yeah, I think it's partly that. I think also um, some of the governments in country in other countries are actually a little more aggressive in dealing with indoor air quality problems than than uh, than we are here. And you know, here if you're a homeowner um, and you have a problem, there's no government agency that's going to help you in the United States, right? Um, and and so the public and private building owners in the United States are really dependent upon. Um, Consultants, people with expertise in indoor air quality, to come and help them when they have problems, because there aren't, there, there isn't sort of a structure outside of of consultants to help them with problems. Some other countries do. Um, they're actually, I think, a little bit more progressive, if you want to, in that sense, um, than than the United States. But I think in the United States, you know, private building owners are on their own when it comes to indoor air quality, and they and they usually don't have knowledge to solve their own problems, so they have to bring people in to help them solve their problems. And I see less of that in other countries than I see in the United States. Well, that kind of leads into a little discussion of, of your presentation on the challenges and opportunities for indoor air science, for the indoor air science community. Um, you know, we all know that indoor air quality can affect occupants, Um how does how does indoor air quality affect those building owners that you were just mentioning? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I guess I would there be a, maybe a twofold answer to that. The first is if the building owner also uh, has their primary business in the building, uh, then they should worry about the productivity of their workers and whether their workers get sick or not and don't come to work or leave early because they have headaches and that type of thing. So if the building owner is also running the business in that building, then it, you know, it can affect their business if the indoor air quality is poor, the indoor environmental quality is poor, just be, just in terms of worker productivity. I think if the building owner is leasing the space to somebody else and that space has, you know, develops poor indoor air quality problems, and I've been involved with cases like that in Austin, um, the building ends up developing a stigma. Um, people find out when the building you own has had problems, and that makes it harder to get good people to come in and lease the space. So I would say in the first case, it's productivity if you own the building and the businesses in the building or business, and then the second case is more of a stigma issue. And I guess depending on what type of indoor air quality issue you have, you, you'd also see the building itself maybe deteriorating more quickly and, and requiring yeah. more upkeep, maintenance, et cetera. Absolutely. So we know that um, there's microbiology that goes on in buildings and chemistry that goes on in buildings that can degrade um, everything from, um, you know, electric wiring to uh, rot in wooden structures and even degradation of um you know, rubber materials. I've been involved with a case where uh, toilets were uh, um, decomposing, if you will, the the, the wax uh, seal on them because of oxidation of them, um, because of very high ozone levels in the building. So, you know, you have to watch out for those types of things. 
And if there certainly if there are uh, historical artifacts or works of art or something like that in the building, those can be degraded by poor indoor air quality. We have a, a facility here at the University of Te- Texas called the Harry Ransom Center that takes on lots of historical artifacts, Gutenberg Bibles, and we have the oldest photograph on Earth and that type of thing. And I know that the staff there goes out of their way to protect those kinds of artifacts from uh, from pollution that enters the building. So, yeah. What is the oldest photograph on Earth of? It's of an, a farmhouse uh, with a tree next to it, and it's uh, they put it out on display occasionally, and it's in a little dark room, and it's under an argon shield, and they have special lights they shine on it so it doesn't degrade, and you have to walk in and look at it from several different angles before you can actually see it. It's on a metal plate, it a, um, but it's, it's neat to see it when it comes out. It comes out every so often, um, and I've seen it now about 10 times. It's just, it's just such a wonderful thing to see. Interesting. I think it was taken somewhere in Europe. I can't remember where. Well, yeah, I remember reading a little bit about you know early photography and, and how long it took for for one photo to to be taken. Essentially, it would take right. you know, and and so that's why I wondered because if it was a building that wasn't moving, you were a little better off than trying to take a photo of a picture back over the person. Yeah, there were, <laughs> there were no pe- there were no people in the in the photograph. <laughs> Interesting. All right, and then let's let's talk before we get into the, some of the dynamics and, and the complexities of IAQ research. I, I want to ask how does it impact or how much impact do buildings have on our natural environment? Yeah, and this is a uh, this is a subject I lecture to my students a lot about because we tend to isolate buildings and somehow treat them as if they're not connected to the rest of the world around them. But certainly, we know that buildings consume about roughly forty percent of all the energy in our country, um, and so you know a lot of um, fossil fuel burning goes into producing uh, the energy that's needed for buildings. Um, and that fossil fuel burning ends up releasing a lot of greenhouse gases, and aside from that, just uh, regular old-fashioned air pollution, outdoor air pollution. So one would be the energy consumed by buildings and its effect on the outdoor atmosphere. The other is that we now see, uh, especially in the Antarctic and the Arctic, you know, uh, polar bears and penguins, um, there's been lots of studies showing the accumulation of flame retardants, uh, and even negative effects of the of flame retardants and other persistent organic pollutants in those animals. I mean, far away from any buildings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and by and large, a lot of the things that we see accumulating in animals and really in the fat of animals in really remote regions uh, that can actually affect. Uh, there's been some studies on the bone density of polar bears um, um, going downhill because of exposure to flame retardants and other. Uh, persistent organic pollutants. And, and we have to remember that those chemicals, whether they're coming from buildings or they're coming from the manufacturing facility and are intended for buildings, the point is that these are chemicals that are used in buildings. And so when we want to produce these chemicals to be used in buildings or we use the chemicals in buildings, they do get out into the natural environment. They do migrate as far away from buildings as we can find them on the globe, and they are having an effect on ecosystems. So the building environment does affect the outdoor environment, for sure. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you're, you're in Texas, and Austin's you know pretty densely populated, but if you look over to Houston, for instance, you, you've got all these buildings just packed into an area there that, 
I mean, it's got to have an effect on, on the, you know, on the natural environment around it. I mean, it really <laughs> certainly on the microenvironment as well, in terms of shading and lack of sunlight and those types of things. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and then water runoff and 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 things like that have <laughs> have changed dramatically. We've changed all those things with our activities. Right. The built environment and the natural environment around it are so interconnected in both directions. And oftentimes, you know, people specialize in one thing and they don't see the other thing because they think very narrowly. And there's one great example. We have, you know, great researchers studying natural water quality in rivers and streams. And then there are researchers that study the built environment and how to make the built environment a better place for people to live. Um, and the connections between those two things don't happen because those two groups of people don't talk to one another. Well, that kind of, again, leads me into the next question. You say IAQ research is dynamic, and I want you to explain for our listeners what you mean by that. So it's dynamic on different scales. And if you think more long-term, uh, one of the things I did in preparing for my, my closing plenary speech in Hong Kong was to look back at the Indoor Air 2002 meeting and the Indoor Air 1999 meeting. 99 was in Edinburgh, Scotland. 2002 was in Monterey, California. And I just went through all of the papers for those conferences, sort of skimmed through them, and compared them with the subjects and the papers that were being presented in Hong Kong. And that's not a long time. You know, we're talking 12 years. That's all it was. Back to Monterey, something on that order. Um, and in that time, if you look back to Monterey, there were no papers presented in Monterey on the effects of climate, climate change on indoor air quality. Whereas in Hong Kong, there was a whole bunch of papers on that subject. In Monterey, there were there were no papers, essentially, on the use of DNA-based testing because of these new technologies that have emerged to understand microbiology in buildings. Here we are in Hong Kong 12 years later, and there's a thread of 100 papers on that subject, right? Nobody was talking about flame retardants and endocrine-disrupting chemicals and plasticizers in Edinburgh, and very few people were in Monterey. Now we've got 50 or 60 research teams that are studying that and presenting their work at Indoor Air Conference. So even in the scale of a decade, um, you know, the sort of major topics, at least in the research field, have changed dramatically. So that, that, that would be a, sort of on a decade scale. Uh, of course, you know and, and I know that, that buildings are also extremely dynamic, right? People in the buildings drive a lot of what happens in buildings, and those people come and go. Um, they come in the daytime, they leave at the nighttime, and they come in the nighttime and they leave in the daytime. That, uh, you know, external meteorology changes, which changes air exchange rates of buildings, is, you know, due to changes in wind pressure around the, the external facade of the building and that type of thing. So even on the scale of minutes, you know, indoor air quality and the indoor environment can change because of just natural changes and natural activities in buildings. So we have scales that are on the order of minutes to scales of decades, and we can see the changes in the dynamic nature of buildings on those, on those very frequent and those very less frequent scales. Hmm. And then well, that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. but you also you also mention in in the paper here that that the IAQ research is also very complex and I, I think you just you started to discuss that complexity when you're you're discussing how dynamic it is, but maybe you could add a little bit on on the complexity of indoor air quality research at you know, this point. Two great examples of the complexity I think is that if you go back in the literature all the way to the 19th century, the mid the mid 1800s, there were physicians in the United States and Europe then who were writing books and papers and treaties on symptoms they were seeing in their patients that today 
absolutely define what we call, you know, sick building syndrome, the symptoms of sick building syndrome. That was a hundred and, you know, 160 plus years ago that physicians were writing about this. And we still don't fully understand SBS. We still don't fully understand all the reasons and causes of SBS. So that's, that, that to me in itself makes is, is, a, is a good marker for how complicated, especially health symptoms are in buildings. The other one is building dampness. I mean, there's overwhelming evidence that people have respiratory problems and other problems in buildings that are damp buildings. I mean, I think, I think that's very conclusive now. But we still haven't been able to figure out why. You know, I don't think it's the water vapor that's causing people to get sick. Something's happening due to the dampness, and whether it be microbiological or chemical, we don't know. But nobody's been able to find the agents or the combination of agents that actually are causing people to be sick in damp buildings. And that this research threat has been going on for two decades now or more, and we still don't have an answer. Um, and so I think those are two examples of how complicated building environments are with respect to bad things that happen in them that we still haven't been able to figure out. I think the other thing I would point out is that there are so many connections in buildings um, that, you know, buildings are complex systems. They're, they're systems of systems. They're, they have anatomies just like human beings have anatomies. And we all know that if something happens, bad happens in one of our organs, you know, what's going on in that organ can sort of cascade to the rest of our body and have negative effects. The same thing's true in buildings. We have people who are experts in thermal comfort, for example. At, at the indoor air conference in Hong Kong, there were maybe 150 pages uh, papers on thermal comfort. I mean, it's always been a huge field. But the people that study thermal comfort have no clue what the effects of changing environmental conditions for thermal comfort have on indoor microbiology or indoor chemistry, if you increase temperature or you relax, you know, sort of where we want to be in terms of humidity ranges, what effect does that have on microbiology or chemistry? We don't know because the people that are chemists and microbiologists don't talk to the thermal comfort people, and the thermal comfort people don't consider microbiology and chemistry. These are complex interactions that we need to do a better job of, of sort of connecting together in a more holistic anatomical system sense for buildings, I think. Uh, and you, you're a researcher, and, and you, you work with a lot of researchers. I would imagine that, you know, this, and I'm, I'm stealing this from your presentation, though, but this really makes our field very much ripe for cross-disciplinary disciplinary research and innovation. And, and are you seeing any of that? Uh, you know, it's slow. I am seeing that happening. It's certainly happening at our university because we're forcing it to happen. Um, but I think in in the field as a whole, it's 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 a slow evolution. I one of the things that I really tried to stress in my presentation in Hong Kong was that um, if you if you were to connect all of these subsystems within buildings, one subsystem that sits in the middle of everything and connects to just about everything are the occupants of the building. You know, we care about indoor air quality because we care about, as you said, the building, but certainly the occupants in the building as well. And the activities of the occupants and what they do in the building and where they are in the building and how they set the thermostats and so on and so forth. I mean, that the occupants themselves have a huge impact on the indoor environment and indoor air quality. Um, and it's amazing to me that, um, you know, at, in, at, in Indoor Air 2014, at my plenary session, there were, you know, 800 people or something in the audience. I said, how many people got a degree in social science? Not one person out of 800 raised their hands. Hmm. There's nobody 
in the indoor air quality community that I know of. I can't think of one. There might be one out there somewhere who who really understands people and how people interact with their surroundings, how people perceive their surroundings, whether it be psychology or other aspects of human behavior. Our community has completely dropped the ball on welcoming social scientists into our field. And I think that's a shame because I do think that human beings are at the center of almost everything in buildings. Hmm. Um, And I don't think that engineers generally or chemists or microbiologists are necessarily very good at understanding human behavior. Is it is it more difficult to get funding for cross disciplinary research? Is that maybe part of the reason we don't see it as often? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Joe. So I think historically that's definitely true, um, especially at the federal level. You know, going after National Science Foundation funding and that type of thing, the the big funding uh, to do research. Um, there's always been historically kind of a stovepipe mentality that, you know, this group will fund mechanical engineers and this group will fund environmental engineers, uh, and there's no reward for crossing over between the groups that have the money who don't necessarily want to share the money. Um, I think that's starting to change, and we see that in academia and we see that at the federal level, that there's more encouragement for cross-disciplinary collaboration and research. Um, but I have to say that that change is happening, but it's it's been sort of a struggle to make it happen. People are still trying to figure out how to make it happen and how to make it happen in a in a good way. Um, so there are programs now at the National Science Foundation that uh, specifically say, you know, we want people in this field and this discipline to be working together, but it's still a relatively small fraction of research funding. Um, so I think it's it's one of those things that's incumbent upon researchers to recognize that it's important and force the issue. Um, so it's happening slowly, but it needs to happen more, in my opinion. You know, and, and I guess there's still just, there are so many things that haven't really been studied adequately yet. You know, I was, it was funny, the other day I was taking a shower and I, I reused my towel, you know, and I'm thinking about the microbiome and, and how often should I reuse my towel before maybe I'm... I'm getting diminishing returns. You know what I mean? And, and, and nobody's yeah, ever yeah. studied that. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, and, and now that's, but that's the way in, in hotels now. They all want us to reuse our towel. And I'm, and, and I have no problem with that. But for some reason, I thought about it while I was drying off. I'm thinking, you know, I wonder how much bacteria and old, you know, the fungi and whatever else is on this towel that I'm reusing several times here, you know, and I, I there's right. some fundamental things like I, I have to go teach some people tomorrow. Uh, actually next week, how to clean a room um, and, and whether there's been any fundamental research on whether, you, you know, what's the best way to clean a room that's had contamination of some type, whether it's fungal or um, asbestos or lead or chemical or whatever the case may be. So it's it's fascinating area. And uh, I really look forward to it this. Is. Uh, you know, I look forward uh, to I this think series the, with you. I'm sorry, Joe. Go ahead. No, I just look forward to this series with you and your your students and, and past uh, you know past students because I think we can really start to make a difference here and get practitioners asking those kind of questions and researchers right. helping us answer them. Right. Uh, you know the 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 micro environments that you're mentioning, such as a room. One of the things that our students have been doing, and we've had researchers come from Europe to work with us on this in our laboratory, is we've really been studying the sleep microenvironment. Um, when you think about 
where you spend your lifetime. You know, the average American lives to be almost 79 years old, 78.7, women 81, men 76. And um, we'll spend over 70 years of our life inside of buildings, over 70 of those 79 years inside buildings. And the place we spend the most time inside of buildings is lying down on our mattress. It's a third of our lives, 26 years of our lives. And it's shocking if you go to the research literature how little the sleep microenvironment's been studied from an indoor air quality standpoint. You know, what are you exposed to when your mouth is right up against the mattress? How does your body, when it's laid out in full horizontal form, affect air flows around it? What can you do uh, to improve the air quality in your breathing zone while you're sleeping? Are there good technologies for putting on your nightstand that will purify the air that you can blow across your face? And, and in fact, there are. Um, we've tested some of those. But, but the public generally doesn't hear about it. Um, so that's that's kind of a really exciting area of research, and we found some really fascinating results. And I'll, I'll, I know that you're going to speak to the students about that, I think, so I'll, I'll let them talk about the results. But it's an area that I'm really excited about. I think it's a great setup for two weeks. I believe two weeks from today we'll be talking about that with one of your students. And, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just thinking even the difference between what if you've got a, a stuffed up head and you breathe as opposed to breathing through your nose, you breathe through your mouth? What's the exposure? What's the difference in the exposure? I mean, you know, those are all tough questions, I yeah. think. Yeah, and exposure to particles are, uh, in terms of particle deposition in your respiratory system, if you breathe through your mouth when you're sleeping, you have a much, you know, you have much more particles that deposit in your respiratory system. Your nose is a great filter. Our nose hairs are, are, are a wonderful air purification device. Um, for the kinds of particles that are emitted from mattresses, and then you got these little um, which is everything from bacteria to dust mite droppings to other things. Yeah, you got the little kids, the very young ones, and they oftentimes have stuffed up noses, so they're breathing through their mouth. I mean, this is all fascinating stuff. I, I, I look forward to it. All right, let me let me get moving. Um, first, I got a text question: Why are there no IAQ doctors to investigate SBS symptoms? You know, that's a great question, and I mentioned that uh, other countries um, are a little bit more proactive on these. I think, and uh, I hope I'm not quoted wrong here, I think it's Belgium now. Belgium has, um, uh, in the medical community, they have these things called the purple taxis, I think they are, and or the thing, purple cars. And what they are is if a... Um, if somebody goes to the doctor and they express that they're having certain symptoms, um, and oftentimes it's flu-like symptoms, all the things we might associate with carbon monoxide in a building, flu-like systems, malaise, headaches, those kinds of things, which are also associated with sick building syndrome. Um, they, there's actually a hotline for the physicians to call, and then the government has these purple cars that race out to your house, and they do carbon monoxide measurements, and they do you know other indoor air quality monitoring in your house. So we don't have anything like that in the United States, but at least there's one country I know of that has a direct connect between physicians and indoor air quality experts. It'll actually go to people's homes. Uh, and see if there's a direct problem in the home that, you know, sometimes can be pretty serious. You don't want people to die from carboxyhemoglobin poisoning. Um, so I, I guess the answer is, in the United States, we're a very, um, um, you know, we're a capitalist society. And so if there's money to be made at it, then I think it'll happen. And there's money to be made when the public is educated on the issues and the public demands these types of things. And I think if the public becomes educated on 
on all of, you know, we could talk for hours on all the indoor air quality issues, you know, but if the public becomes educated on the big ones, then perhaps they demand these things. And then perhaps there are companies that, that, uh, you know, start up and say, let's see if we can, let's see if we can make a business out of this. All right. That was, that was a great, that was a great question, by the way. I, I, I think it's a very legitimate question and it's something that, you know, maybe in the future we see more of that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, and I, I want to urge them to check out even next week and, and look back. We've had a few MDs, Dr. John Woulette, I remember, O-U-E-L-L-E-T-E. Um, he used to go out and do that. He would go to the to his his, um, his patients' homes and, and actually do these evaluations. And we've tried to get folks on uh, that do that, but it is very tough to find them. I think it's a great point. All right, um, let's move on with um, what do you think as far as, like, growing the IAQ field? What kind of fuel will ultimately help us grow this field? I think there's, I just mentioned one of them. I think the public needs to know more about the importance of indoor air quality. Um, it's amazing when I, when I do speak to the general public and I tell them how much time they spend indoors, that's a pretty simple concept, you know, that you spend almost 90% of your time indoors and 70 years out of your average 78.7 years you're going to spend inside a building. It's a simple concept and it's, it's amazing to me how shocked people are when they hear that. You know, people don't realize how much time they spend indoors. And then from that point on, you can sort of go down the list of all the things that they should be concerned about and ways of improving indoor air quality. And that's the other point is that we need to talk more, I think, in our field about positive things you can do to improve indoor air quality so it's not just all negative, 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 because the public tends to turn off to that. But I think one is, is education. I think the other thing, and I mean this very sincerely, this is something that I've always felt, even though I'm an academic and I'm a researcher, is that the the environmental fields, if you will, that have thrived over a hundred years are fields where researchers and practitioners have worked together. And I don't think nearly enough of that happens in our field. In fact, I think very little of it happens in our field. And I think that our field will thrive more when when especially researchers, and I think it's more our fault than the fault of practitioners, um, come to grips with the fact that we need to help boil down the research we're doing um, in a way that practitioners can use it and can use it on the front lines every day, that consultants and industrial hygienists and people that work in, with mechanical systems and buildings, you know, they need to know about what we're doing and they need to know what the cutting edge findings are that the research community is coming up with. And I think that connection has just not been made very well in our field and we need to find ways of of connecting research and practitioners i don't have the answer for how that's done but i think you know good people ought to come together and have a um you know a three-day meeting or something and, and outline the ways that we can make that happen in the future because it needs to happen for our field to grow i mean researchers can do all the research we want to do with whatever money we can scrape together to do the research but if we're not willing to talk about it in a practical sense it's all for naught. You know, it's going to get published in a journal somewhere and nobody's going to read it. Well, and I, so, I, I, I think. I want to thank you for doing your part today, even. I mean, this is what we've tried to do for eight years now is, is get researchers like yourself on to talk to the practitioners that are listening out there and, and work together on solving some of these issues. Yeah, I, and I appreciate that. I listen to your show sometimes because I actually want to know what practitioners' needs are. Um, and that's the other thing is that researchers need to listen to practitioners and, and be told, you know, these are the things we need answers to. Um, I don't think we do enough of that. 
Well, here's one we need answers to. Um, it seems like, you know, every year there's a new silver bullet coming out that uh, is going to, you know, fix the whole indoor environment for us with uh, no cost or very little cost and, uh, you know, buy this magic machine. And, for example, we have the hydroxyl machines that have been advertised and we've got, uh, you know, other things that come out every year. So how can we do, uh, our researchers do a better job of keeping up and giving us practitioners more solid science to work with when these things come up. So, you know, what I just said basically was that researchers don't really oftentimes know what these kinds of questions are. So you just mentioned hydroxyl radical machines and you know, I knew that I know that these exist and there are companies out there that try to sell these and use these. Um, it, from where I sit, I don't know how extensive that is. And I don't know, you know, are all practitioners being faced with the possibility of using these or not? So just listening to practitioners like yourself, just saying that and saying, we need information on this is important. And then researchers can actually do the research. And this kind of research, sort of simple tests on devices like that, actually doesn't cost a lot of money. Um, so I think one is, is the researchers need to listen to you. And if, if that is you know, one of the top five areas that practitioners need answers to, that's the thing that researchers need to do the research on and get the word out. Um, I don't have any experience with those systems myself. My guess is that they probably do help disinfect surfaces to some extent for certain microorganisms, but not for all microorganisms. And then the concern becomes um, if you're generating hydroxyl radicals, you're probably generating uh, other oxidants. Uh, including the hydroxyl radicals themselves, which are going to react with the surfaces that they're placed over. And so you're going to, in part, break down the surfaces and, in part, generate um, byproducts, chemical byproducts, which will then be released from those surfaces. And what you form is going to depend upon uh, what you form and how much you form is going to depend upon how intense the hydroxyl radical generation is what else it's generating, and what the nature of the surface is that you're placing this device on. Um, if you put this device on uh, ceramic countertop, you're going to get you know a different set of reaction products than if you put it on something that's wooden, uh, for example. Yeah. Um, but that's research that researchers can actually do easily um, if we're told these are the things we really need answers to. I've always felt I, I would love it if we could have some sort of a system where every year practitioners in this field came up with the five big questions that they need answers to. And then that got to the research community somehow. And that became sort of a research agenda for researchers that year. And that, you know, maybe we could even pull some practitioners into research proposals uh, sort of to help us. Because in addition to just doing the research on something, as you know, how these things are used in the field is also important. Yes, um, and I might take one of these systems to my laboratory and I might use it in some way and get certain results that are consistent with how I used it in my laboratory, but not how people are actually using it in actual homes or schools or, you know, office buildings. And having the practitioner involved who's involved with these things, you know, in the field on the front lines to tell us how we should test it in the laboratory, I think is important. And we're, again, we're missing those connections. You know, though, I think uh, it's I, coming. Um, you know, IICRC, which uh, some are familiar with, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, yeah. they, they bought a building out in Las Vegas. They want to do that kind of research, so I need to connect, 
you and, and the Richard Shaughnessy's, and, and I've been working on this with that group. Who are, they're the cleaners. They're the restorers. They, they are the people that need this information, and we need to get some practical research projects that we can do. And, and actually, we even have some money to fund some of this, which is, I know, rare to say. Um, you know, and, and so we're, we're going, I think we're going to see progress on this. And, and this is a big part of starting it is having people like you on the show, talking with people like me, and then with our guests sending in their, their thoughts. Yeah, no, I I appreciate that. I think you're you're right on. And the other area that I I find it's just getting beyond our capabilities to keep up keep up is this kind of avalanche or sea of green products and green building materials that are just being used at, at an, an incredibly accelerated rate in buildings these days, all types of buildings, residential to commercial to institutional, and the science behind what happens to those materials over time is for all intents and purposes, non-existent. Um, and that scares me in some ways. We've done some testing with materials that I consider to be beautiful, bio-based green materials, you know, that are made out of sunflower seed husk cabinetry and that type of thing. And we find that if we expose them to 80% relative humidity in a natural environment for a couple of weeks, they start looking like chia pets. You know, they're just, <laughs> just growing mold all over them. And we haven't even hit them with any liquid water, right? It's just, you know, elevated RH. So um, I, I worry about these things because I don't know what we're doing now that will affect buildings over the next decade in ways that, you know, we, we, the science just can't predict what's going to happen with some of these materials. Yeah, and the, and the practitioners are, are essentially being forced into using them because they market them so well that the building owners want them without knowing what the results are. Right. It's, it's frightening. Yeah, I agree. It's frightening. All right, let me. we're running low on time, so I really want to get at least one or maybe two more questions in here. Um, let's see. Let's go with this one. What new tools can practitioners expect in the near future for, for helping us with things like the, the microbiome and, and DNA analysis and all that stuff? Is there anything out there that's, like, ready to come out? Well, I think that, um, I think that the costs of doing DNA analysis um, have come down so much that commercial laboratories or many more commercial laboratories are now able to do it at, at costs that are practical costs. So I think that that is, you just mentioned that one, but because of the cost reductions, that's one area where I think uh, there will be advancements for the, for the for practitioners. I think the issue with all the DNA analysis is that generally when you take samples, you get a lot more information than you do with the culture-based analyses. Um, and so there's a learning curve there uh, for practitioners that, and, and again, I think this is another area where there could be connections between researchers and practitioners is putting on some short courses and that type of thing to show how to interpret the data that you get. Otherwise, it just looks like a lot of gibberish, um, but there's a lot of valuable information in that. I think there's a lot more um, uh, in the research community now. We see um, a lot of new tools that are micro tools, you know, tools that people can actually wear so that... You know, if somebody's complaining about something in a building, there are these, you know, much cheaper tools now that you can hook up to people's clothing uh, that don't cost that much, um, that can collect a lot of data. Um, and so I would say sensors is another area that um, 
I think there's a revolution in right now that over the next five or six years, there'll be a lot more tools in terms of sensors for practitioners to use in buildings, whether they're left in a static position in a building or, or placed on a person's lapel. These would be things that are, that don't take, you know, a week to collect the data for and send to a lab and that type of thing like we've traditionally done with exposure studies. I think the other area is that buildings now are becoming much more, um, sort of, um, places where we collect a lot of data. There's just a lot of data being collected in buildings with wireless technologies now. And these wireless technologies are getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Um, even, you know, in the future, probably for doing online kind of DNA analyses. But certainly now with doing all the carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, um, movement of people in buildings, GPS tracking systems in buildings, and all that kind of thing. Um, and so in modern buildings now, um, there's big data being collected just in that building that that we need to come to grips with and how to process um, that can maybe tell stories about why certain things are happening in, in some zones of the building and not happening in other zones of the building. So I think these are the three things. It's probably technology, sensor technology, uh, big data, and then the, the the DNA kinds of work in microbiology that are that are going to transform the field in the next few years. And I think that 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 information ought to become available to practitioners. Um, and I think there is going to be a learning curve on all of it. All right. Well, one more. Uh, do you have another minute or two here? I do, yeah. Okay. yeah. Great, great. How do you suggest that these practitioners we've been talking about so much, how, how should they – how do they go about best positioning themselves for the future? I mean, things are changing pretty quickly. Uh, we've got more information sometimes than we know what to do with. How do we how do we make sense of all this? How do we position ourselves? Wow, uh, I'm not sure. I'm sitting in the best place to answer that question, not being a practitioner. But I do think that you know I'm an educator, and I think that education is important, and we need to find a way of being able to educate practitioners with, with all the things I've been talking about and boiling it down in a way that they can use it soon um, and use it in the best possible way to use it. You know, researchers can do all the research in the world. Practitioners know how to get things done in the field. So somehow there needs to be a connection where research is translated to practitioners who then take that information and use it in the best way they know how to use it, not how the researchers tell them to use it, right? right. And that's a process that's gonna that's a process that's gonna require um, you know, uh, those that are members of IAQA and other practitioner associations working with um, those that that are members of ISIAC and do research at ISIAC and other places to to somehow talk to one another. I, I hope that in the future, I can be a part of making that happen. I don't know how best to make it happen, but I really do feel it needs to happen. We tried really hard at Indoor Air 2011 to to design the conference so that we would have an integration of practitioners and researchers. I think we did an, an okay job at that, but I think more of that is needed. Um, I know that ISIAC now, I believe Carl Grimes is sitting on the board of directors for ISIAC, and I think that's a good thing. Um, need to have more of that. And, uh, you know, maybe some of the practitioner organizations should should look to researchers and ask researchers to serve on their boards and to be more active with their organizations. I think that would be a positive thing. You know, um, uh, somehow we somehow we need to put together. I agree that we don't we don't need we don't we need almost a university um, online university or some sort of, you know, pseudo university that's that's translating cutting edge research information like like I've been trying to talk about to practitioners and um, you know, I think 
I think we just need a, a nucleus of people to come together and make that happen somehow. All right. And maybe this is the start. You know, we, we can work together and continue looking at that that issue. It's a, it's a problem. It's something that we have to do, you know, do something about. And by the way, I, I want to congratulate you on that. The Indoor Air 2011, I was there, and and it was very valuable, and I, I thought, you know, you maybe weren't uh, kind enough to yourself there. You guys did a great job of reaching out to the practitioners uh, for that particular conference. It feels like maybe that kind of the momentum stopped a little bit here um, and that, you know, maybe we can get that ball rolling again. Yeah, so the next ISIAC meeting is in Boulder in t- uh, next year in 2015. So Healthy Buildings 2015 will be two. There'll be one in the United States and one in Europe, and the one in the United States will be in Boulder, Colorado, I think around July of 2015, June or July of next year. And, uh, you know, maybe that's, uh, um, that's a conference where we can try to make things happen again yeah. uh, between researchers and practitioners. I just put it on my calendar here. I'll find out the exact dates and, and make sure because that's – I think that's a great place to get started. Love to meet you out there. All right, before we go, is there anything you'd like to add? And by the way, for the listeners and and the the sponsors that um, were waiting for halftime, it never came. I wanted to get these questions, and I still didn't get them all for Dr. Corsi. We'll add halftime in after the show, and uh, I appreciate the sponsors bearing with me and uh, letting us do that after the show. Anything you'd like to add before we go or anything we missed um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, Joe. I will say that I really enjoy your show. I do listen to it, and I really appreciate the fact that this is the second or third time you've had me on in five years. I always enjoy speaking with you. And, um, you know, I think the indoor air quality field is exciting because the problems are so complicated and so integrated. And that's one of the reasons that I have stayed in the field, quite honestly. It's a field that is hurting for research money. Those of us that work in this field don't get a lot of money to do research. And the fact that we stay in it, that those of us that do stay in the field, it's because we think it's important, and it's because uh, we think it's exciting and it's challenging, and it has great intellectual merit. Um, and what I like to do is to see this field advance, and as we talked about, connect the kinds of research that many of us are doing with practitioners to start using it on the front line. So, I, I thank you for what you do. So, thanks, Joe. That's much appreciated, and and we definitely appreciate having you on the show again, and, and look forward to. Uh, a little series of shows where we can start to to build on what we started here today all right this is radio joe hughes saying thanks so okay. much dr corsi thank you joe thank you we, we thank really you. appreciate having you and uh, next week we've got uh rebecca morley the executive director of the national center for healthy housing i'm still working on a second guest um because we're going to talk about their new uh, standard for healthy homes, the healthy home standard, and we're going to get one of the um, more technical people that were on the committee there to join us with uh, with Rebecca Morley. So we're looking forward to that. In two weeks, we'll have Dr. Corsi and one of his students back. We're going to talk a little bit about that exposure issue and uh, you know how, how much exposure we have on when we're in a mattress. Now we're talking what one third of our lives is spent there. So amazing um, that we don't have more information on that. It's coming. I want to thank also uh, the Z-Man wasn't here this week. He'll be back next Friday at noon. Of course, we'll uh, get him back on and uh, get back in the seat here next week. Also, thank you to our sponsors for uh, sticking with us and for letting me go through without the halftime break today. Most importantly, thanks to our growing group of loyal listeners. And thanks, guys, for sending in these texts. We're going to take that um, 
text or two that had some recommendations for guests and some great uh, resources for people that are interested in Dr. Corsi's work. We'll post those on our website, and I'll get in touch with the guest uh, recommendation. Thanks for joining us. Please come back next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio. Thank <laughs> you.